listening New York Rangers fans and welcome to episode 140 of the New Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercogliano of the USA Today Network, and here we sit as the calendar is about to turn from February into March, and we are now one week away from the NHL trade deadline. So there is a lot to talk about this week. Much of it will be focused on the upcoming deadline and what the Rangers might be looking at doing in the coming days in order to really pull back the curtain and give us not just an idea of where the Rangers might be leaning, but also what's going on and what some of the whispers are around the league right now. I asked, in my opinion, one of the best people who covers the entire league, in Emily Kaplan of ESPN to come on this week's show, which she always graciously accepts my invitation, and I very much appreciate it. So in just a little while, we're going to hear from Emily, who's going to size the whole thing up. Centers, right wings, what all these different teams that might be buyers, that might be sellers, might be thinking right now, and of course, what she's hearing about the Rangers. Her and I kind of bounce some stuff off of each other as far as what I'm hearing, what I'm thinking, and the same for her. So definitely an interesting conversation with Emily coming up that I'm sure a lot of you are going to want to hear because I know you're going to want to talk about those targets. I know you're going to want to hear which names are being floated and that sort of thing. And we're definitely going to roll up our sleeves and dive into that with Emily. But first, let's assess where the Rangers are at this stage. And the Rangers are finding themselves yet again in a very strong position. You think about what's happened since we last spoke last week. The Rangers have played four games in that span. They played four games in a matter of, I think, seven days. Three of them came in a matter of four days, so it was rapid fire there over the weekend. They had that big win in New Jersey against the Devils on Thursday. Really, I think, one of the signature wins of the season for them when you consider the rivalry, when you consider the Devils being the team that knocked them out of the playoffs last year, when you consider the Devils being a team that is desperately trying to claw their way back into that wild card race in the Eastern Conference. It's slipping away from them right now. Things seem to be crumbling a little bit in New Jersey, and the Rangers went in there to the Prudential Center and put their foot down and came away with a convincing 5-1 to one win. You can look at the shot totals and say, well, it doesn't look like the Rangers really dominated that game. And domination might not be the way that I would describe it. But I think watching that game, you felt like the Rangers were in control the entire time. You felt like they were clearly the better team. You felt like when it came to doing all the little things required to win, whether it was goaltending, another strong performance from Igor Shesterkin in that one, whether it was capitalizing on their opportunities, especially when you think about the night that Alexi Lafreniere had, scoring a pair of goals in that game as that line with him, Panarin, and Trocek continues to just hum for the Rangers. And you think about them keeping a lot of those shots for the Devils on the perimeter. The Devils racked up a high shot total, but not a lot of them, in my opinion, would register as grade A or high danger. It was a lot of stuff that I think was easy for Igor Shosturkin to see and save, and that helped him continue to get in this really good rhythm that he's in right now, and the Rangers march out of there again with a win by a 5-1 to one margin. They go to Philly on Saturday. They kind of had to squeak that one out, definitely did not play as well, but in the process, they were able to tie the franchise record for longest winning streak at 10 straight games. 
They, at that point, had still yet to lose a game in the month of February, which is pretty wild to think about. But then, as all things tend to do, good things came to an end. Sunday in Columbus, where the Rangers just looked like they were out of gas, quite frankly. I was away from my buddy's wedding, but I did get to come back and watch a good portion of the game later on in the day once I got home. And it just seemed like they were kind of running on fumes at that point. And you're not going to expect, you know, with all those wins piling up and this crazy month that they've had, the stadium series and, and the grueling schedule and all of that, that they would be able to maintain that for every single game. So I think it's okay to give them a pass for finally losing one after winning 10 in a row. But then what do they do? They come right back after getting a few days to rest and recover and be back home. And they took care of business Wednesday night against the Blue Jackets again at Madison Square Garden to get themselves back on the winning track. And they were much better, I thought, defensively in particular in that game. We talk about the shot totals, and again, I I don't know if I would read too much into that because I think a lot of these games during that winning streak where they gave up a lot of shots, they weren't necessarily high-quality shots, but they still had gone five straight games giving up 40 shots on goal or more, which is too high of a number. You don't want the number to be that high. It's definitely something I believe Peter Laviolette addressed with the group, and I thought the Rangers were much better defensively Wednesday night when they got that home game against the Blue Jackets. Again, the Panarin line made the difference in that one. Panarin finishes with a pair of goals, three points on the night, up to 82 points on the season, now on pace for 112 points this season, which will blow away his previous career high. He's already surpassed his career high for goals in the season, which was 32. Now he's already at 35 with 22 games remaining to play. So 40 looks well within his reach could even think for a higher number than that. This is having, I think in a lot of ways, you could say his best season with the Rangers. It's either this one or his first year when he was a Hart Trophy finalist. He didn't want to talk about the milestones. He didn't want to talk about potentially surpassing 100 points in a season for the first time in his career after the game. But you look at that line, even early in the first period, the Rangers didn't get a goal, but it felt like almost every dangerous chance that they had came from that line. Lafreniere is starting to score at a higher clip recently. We've talked about all the high danger scoring chances that he generates, just not finishing enough of them. But that finishing rate is climbing recently. And he just looks so assertive, so decisive, whether it's shooting or setting up Panarin. He's been a very, I think, almost underrated presence on that line because Panarin obviously gets a lot of the credit Trocheck was named as an NHL All-Star this season. It seems kind of funny to say that a former number one overall pick could be flying under the radar, but it, it to me feels like Lafreniere has been one of, let's say, the six or seven best players on this team this year. Maybe I'm even selling him short there. Maybe one of the five best players on this team this season. And that line, if not for them, The five-on-five scoring, I think, would be much more of a vocalized issue with this team, but they continue. Almost every single night, they do not disappoint because of the chances that they generate, and they tend to convert at least one or two of those, it seems like, every single game. They got the scoring going in the second period with Panarin getting kind of a quick wrister off once Vincent Trocek won an offensive zone faceoff. Those guys were also contributing later on in the game. Panarin ends up getting an empty netter. I was joking with him after the game that I 
could not ever remember him scoring an empty netter. And, and he laughed about it and said that in 10 years, he can't remember doing it either. So little funny moment for him there, a little stat padding, I guess you could say. But most of his goals, the vast majority of his goals are not empty netters. Pretty much all of the others are not empty netters and come within the flow of the game. And a lot of them come at really critical moments for the Rangers. And then, of course, Igor Shosturkin. It would be impossible not to mention him again. He did not have to work as hard as he has in some of the previous wins this month. But just think about where we were with this guy a month ago when I think the loudest questions surrounding this team were about the goaltending. He went through basically a two-month period where he was at best inconsistent and at worst just not very good. His save percentage had dipped under 900 heading into the All-Star break, and it just felt like, yes, we've seen slumps from him before, but this was the longest one. This was probably the most concerning one that we've seen in his five seasons with the Rangers. I believe I said to you guys at the time that I still felt like eventually because we've seen him come out of these things before and we know how good he is when he's on top of his game that he would eventually work his way there, but... I'd be lying if I told you that I didn't look at it as a legitimate concern at the time. And now what do we have? Well, we have Igor just going 7-0 in the month of February while posting a 9.53 save percentage. So Igor Shosturkin most certainly has got his groove back. And that of all the takeaways from this month of February when the Rangers went 10-1, is, I think, the biggest one, the most important one, because now that you have him playing as well as you know he's capable of playing, everything else seems to be falling in place for the Rangers. It hasn't always been perfect. There are certainly some lingering concerns. We could talk about the five-on-five scoring. The power play is still not clicking on all cylinders, far from it. So that is an area that you feel like you need to unlock before you get to the playoffs. I still think that when we talk about the Rangers defensively at times, whether it's defending off the rush or protecting the high danger areas, I I do think I'd like to say that they have been better in both of those areas this month. So the defense at times, I think, has tightened. Again, we talk about those high shot totals, but a lot of them are coming from the perimeter. A lot of them are coming from low danger areas. So I think that they've gotten better there, but you need to see them maintain that because we've seen highs and lows in the defensive area for the Rangers pretty much all season. Started really strong, went into a slump. Now they've been better again, I think, recently. But there are obviously concerns, and there are obviously areas that they need to continue to chip away at continue to work at. But right now, the vibes are high again, and they're back in this mode where it seems like they consistently, even when they don't have their A game in all areas, they consistently find ways to win. So things are very positive for the Rangers right now. This month of February has been exactly what they needed. And now where do they find themselves? Well, They went through that 25-game period where they only won 11 games and all those alarm bells were going off. And I know there was a lot of concerns in certain segments of the fan base, but they're right back where they were before that slump occurred. They are at the top of the Eastern Conference. The win over Columbus on Wednesday moved them back to having the highest point total in the East. Boston 
and Florida are right behind them. So it's a very close race right now. But the Rangers right now, if the season ended today, would have the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. They're tied with the Vancouver Canucks for most points in the entire league. And they actually have a slightly higher points percentage than the Canucks. So we could talk about the flaws, but I think you can say that about pretty much any of these contending teams. And what we're seeing is that in an NHL field of contending teams that is, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of many others, wide open, the Rangers are right there with anybody. I think that their chances of going on a run and doing some damage in the playoffs are as good as anybody right now because there is not a dominant team in the NHL. I do think, and we're going to talk about this a little bit with Emily in a minute, but when you look at the Eastern Conference, the team that would scare me the most, the team that probably looks to be the most complete when you factor in skill and grit and defense and goaltending, although the goaltending is not quite as good as I think Shesterkin is when he's at the top of his game, of course. But when you factor in everything and the run that they went on last year, the Panthers are certainly a threat. I think the Panthers fairly could be labeled as the favorite in the Eastern Conference right now, but I don't feel like there really is a true favorite. I feel like there are a handful of teams that if things fall into place for them, they could very well find themselves in the Stanley Cup final. And the Rangers are on that list. And to me, that is probably the number one reason. Among other reasons, there's a handful of them that we can go over. But that is probably the number one thing that I've been thinking about this week as we have this conversation about what the Rangers should be doing at the trade deadline, which again is coming up next Friday. So there are some really critical decisions that they're going to have to make in the next few days or the coming days, but at the forefront of their mind should be this realization that this is anybody's game. There is no clear front runner right now. It is wide open. And if you make a couple of the right moves, I'm not saying the splashiest moves. I'm not saying the biggest names. We saw them do that last year where they went out and they snagged Patrick Kane and they snagged Vladimir Tarasenko. And you felt like they just had so much star power and they were going to be able to overpower teams with their skill and their talent in the playoffs. And clearly that did not work out. The lesson learned there is that it's not about being the splashiest team. It's about being the savviest team. It's about being the team that finds the right fit for your specific needs. And when we talk about the needs for the Rangers, obviously we're talking about center and obviously we're talking about right wing. We'd like to add some scoring punch at five on five. I think that is definitely part of it, but also some speed, some tenacity, some of those will over skill elements that I think you need to succeed when the ice gets tighter in the playoffs. Those guys that are going to play more of that straight ahead game that aren't going to make the costly turnovers that are going to defend like their life depends on it, that are going to cause all the chaos in the high danger areas of the ice that we see leads to a lot of playoff goals and helps prevent a lot of playoff goals wins the one-on-one battles. I don't want to get too lost in the cliches here, but I do think that the Rangers want that tenacity. I think that's probably the best word for it. I think they want the guys who are going to scratch and claw and fight for every inch that they get in the playoffs. On top of also adding some scoring punch, especially when you talk about a right winger who might be able to potentially play on the top line with Mika Zibanejad and Chris Kreider. So they want to check multiple boxes here. Speed, speed is definitely another important one, but 
with that being said, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to go out and, and chase the most expensive guys on the market. You need to trust your scouting. You need to be really thorough in your process and you need to identify the guys that will fit in the specific roles that you need them to fit on this team. And that's probably going to be a third line center and a right winger who at least has the ability to move up in the lineup. The Rangers recently moved Capo Caco back up there. He played in that top line right wing spot again on Wednesday night against Columbus. Kind of a nondescript night for him and for that line, quite frankly. Kreider ends up getting a couple goals. Or I'm sorry, he got a goal and a power play assist, but neither one of those came at even strength. So it didn't feel like it clicked right off the bat for that line right there. And the truth is it's probably a temporary solution because I think there's a very good chance that in a matter of days, you're going to have some competition for Kako in that spot. But we've talked about this before of the current options. He's the one who makes the most sense. I quite frankly thought the Rangers should have let him roll when he came back from that injury for better or for worse up until the trade deadline, give him a long runway to see if that line could build a little chemistry and build some momentum and turn those positive analytics into tangible results. It's been to stop and go, I think for him, but the reality is that they definitely could use another option there, an alternative there because in the limited time Kako has had there this season, which I believe is now 18 games, he's only produced three points. So you definitely feel like that's a position the Rangers are, are going to try to address. But we'll get into exactly who they might be looking at and those type of things with Emily in just a moment. I also just finished a column about all of this, which you can check out at loha.com slash sports slash Rangers. It goes into, yes, what I'm hearing about some of the targets, some of the costs out there, some of the alternatives, whether the Rangers decide to really be bold and, and go for some of the most expensive pieces on the market right now, or maybe look for guys who might be flying a little bit more under the radar. And again, that's what we're going to talk about with Emily in just a minute. But it also lays out why I think the Rangers will be aggressive and should be aggressive as this deadline comes up. We just talked about how wide open it looks like the field in the NHL is. We've talked about this core of players, the 30 and over guys, Kreider, Panarin, Zabanajad, Truba, Trocek, how those guys, their window is going to inch a little bit more closed with each passing year. And kicking the can down the road doesn't really make a lot of sense when you consider all that they've invested into that veteran core that they have on the roster right now. And it all adds up to this point where it's time to go for it. Now, I'm not saying sell the farm for marginal pieces. I think, again, it's imperative to find the right fits and not necessarily overpay for them. Chris Drury, I, I looked this up the other day before I wrote the column. He is now, since he took over in 2021, traded away 20 draft picks. So they have depleted their asset collection. Now, they've held on to most of their top prospects. And what I'm hearing again right now is that the two pieces that are off limits at the trade deadline are Gabe Perot, who continues to tear up the NCAA with Boston College this season as a freshman, and Brennan Othman, who is the top prospect that the Rangers have with Hartford right now. I strongly believe that those guys are not going to be traded. They want to hold on to those two. I think that they value those two guys more than any draft pick and more than any other prospect in the system. But I think a lot of other things are going to be on the table, and that includes this 24 
first round draft pick, which if we're being real, there's value in a first round draft pick, of course, but that pick is going to land in the late twenties or the Rangers hope in the early thirties. And this draft is not an especially deep draft from everything that I've heard. You're going to hear Emily talk about this a little bit in a moment as well. So I think for the right piece, now this isn't going to be just some bottom six run-of-the-mill kind of guy, but for a piece that they identify as somebody that they really think will add value and help push them over the top, I do believe that that first-round pick is going to be on the table. The Rangers actually have every future first-round pick at their disposal right now. All of their future first-round picks are still within their control. Where they've depleted it a bit more is when you look at the second and third round picks. In the next three drafts, the Rangers combined only have two picks in the second and third rounds. So that is where they're going to have a little more difficulty if it's a team that's looking to maybe get a second round pick in return for one of those lesser pieces, not one of the top of the market guys. The Rangers don't have quite as much to offer there. But there's a collection of prospects as well that they could be looking at. We've talked about Zach Jones and how he's a guy that I think could be on the table. I think that next wave of forwards behind Perot and Offman, whether it's Berard or Sakura or McConnell Barker or even a guy like Edstrom or Rempe, who are, are big talking points right now in the Rangers, and I think we'll get into them a little bit more later on in the show. Those guys, I think, could all be on the table. The first-round pick could be on the table. You don't want to completely get rid of all your draft picks. I understand that. And I do think that there will come a time probably in the near future where they need to be more prudent. But again, the window for them is open right now. The NHL is looking wide open right now. They are on top of the Eastern Conference. I don't see how you justify with the cushion that this team has built and the position that they've put themselves in. I don't see how you justify not doing whatever you can within reason to make this team better and put them in the best position for playoff success, because there's only going to be so many cracks that you have it. And right now looks to me to be maybe in my time covering the team, the best opportunity that they've had to really enter the playoffs with a head of steam and, and do some real damage. The 2022 run kind of came out of nowhere and that was a great surprise, and, and that was a really fun one to cover, and I'm sure a really fun ride for a lot of you to follow along with, but that was a little bit ahead of schedule. Then last year, you felt like the Rangers should be in position to be one of those top contenders, and they flamed out, and now they're at a point where I think they're probably putting together the best overall season that they have, maybe since they won the President's Trophy in 2015. I believe it was. They're going to be right there, it looks like, in that President's Trophy conversation again this year. And with all these guys who are clearly in their primes, in that 30 and older range, and only getting older from this point forward, this is a time, I think, to go for it. And I do think you're going to see Chris Drury act accordingly. So with all of that being said, let's get to this week's chat with Emily Kaplan and then after we're done with that, I'll be back, as always, to answer this week's set of Twitter questions. Now let's welcome back to the show one of our favorite guests to talk about the entire league with. Of course, I'm talking about Emily Kaplan from ESPN, who I know is very, very busy at this time of year, working the phones and trying to get the lowdown on the trade deadline. So, Emily, 
welcome back and thank you so much for carving out a little time during what I know is a crazy time of year for you. Uh, I always have time for you. I think you absolutely crush it on the Rangers beat. And um, yeah, no, I'm making a bunch of calls this week. I have to tell you, though, March 9th is my day on the calendar that I've circled. I cannot wait. Like, I know this is exciting for fans. It's also anxious for fans, but it's just a really annoying time. And, uh, you know, it's it's good excitement about the league, but I can't wait for it all to be over. So what what will you do on March 9th? Uh, I will be in Pittsburgh for a game or Boston. Uh, it's a Bruins uh, Penguins game on our network. So oh, just gonna I, talk about the games, which is good. I was thinking about, you know, feet up on the couch, maybe a bottle of wine, something like that. But no, you won't have that luxury yet. Maybe I'll have a glass of wine the night of March 8th. How about that? Uh, all right. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Well, again, I really do appreciate you. And, and I definitely want to talk about the deadline stuff because I know you're all over it. But I want to start with the clip that I know bounced around a lot this weekend and kind of the, in some ways, maybe the biggest talking point or one of the biggest talking non-deadline points in the league right now is Matt Rempe and what he's been doing in these first five games with the Rangers. I have to tell you, practice on Tuesday, my jaw dropped when I walked in because, you know, your colleague Greg is there from ESPN and we've got the Wall Street Journal and we've got all these people, I mean, mobbed with reporters. The most reporters I've seen maybe for any Rangers practice, definitely for a regular season Rangers practice. And everybody was there because they wanted to talk to Rempe and you got a chance to meet him. I know over the weekend, I believe it was the Philly game and got to interview him after the game and just see the charisma and how excited and happy this 21 year old kid is to be here. So just your impressions of meeting him, what he was like and what he's doing and how it's kind of resonating around the league. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes without saying we all understand what he's been doing and fighting players every single game probably isn't sustainable. And um, this is going to taper out in some way. Um, But he is a cult hero and he has absolutely captivated the attention, not just of the hockey world, but I think it's resonating outside it because it's just so unexpected and refreshing. And it does give you that throwback feel like that Delorier fight was probably the best fight I had seen in like two decades in the NHL. It just felt like two heavyweights going at it but then the refreshing candor that he talked about it and almost feeling like a puppy dog because his youthful exuberance was um just a delight to see and you know everything I hear about this kid I've talked to a lot of people in his life um he's a really humble kid and he's worked for everything he had he came to Seattle um and their junior team really gangly and kind of awkward as a skater and definitely a late bloomer um you know apparently he would just take a ton of penalties and was too scared to fight because he felt like he was going to get his ass kicked and then at 18 realized he probably needed to add that to his game um but then just the wherewithal like when he made his call up he texted every single person in that organization from the coaches to the trainers letting him know them know and thanking him and just that maturity um in his journey and then you know the story of him making the debut outdoors six years to the day where his dad passed away um, shoveling snow and a tragic heart attack. But his dad sounds like he was a total character, played a bunch of music, and apparently Matt and his sister and his mom who are really close honor him by uh, jamming together. He can pick up any instrument and play and just those type of things that he's a multidimensional player. And, you know, so, so many times in this interviews, you see a lot of neutered personality, um, but we don't have that with this kid. Again, I just keep using the word refreshing and it's just been awesome to see. And I just wish him the success because I think he's humble. He's soaking it all in and we should all just be reminded that this is a game sometimes. And it's okay to say like, Hey, this is really cool. This kid's enjoying it. Let's enjoy it with him. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody. I've talked to a lot of guys that have gotten called up and made their debut, but nobody that was quite as uniquely amped for it 
as he was going, and especially obviously the outdoor game added to the thrill, I'm sure. But you just got the sense that he's always kind of runs hot in that excitable way. And Johnny Bradzinski told me he's like a big teddy bear. Like, and I find it interesting. I'm, I'm curious if you find it this way too. A lot of times the guys who are perceived as the tough guys, the fighters, those guys that on the ice seem like they're just savage off the ice are like some of the nicest, most humble people you'll meet. It, it, it's so funny how that seems to work. It really is uncanny. And the way the reason he fights is because he's really doing it for his teammates and for the guys. And he's, you know, not just necessarily protecting them, but wanting them to get amped up and get into the game, too. And I feel like he's actually doing it for selfless reasons, even though he has become the story here. And it's very counterintuitive or an antidote to what we typically see from hockey players who are all about the we culture. Like he is doing it for the guys. And I think that's why the coaching staff and management group loves him so much, too. Yeah, it's definitely a really cool story. But obviously now what we're going to be writing about and talking about a lot in the next week is the NHL trade deadline. And the Rangers, I know my expectation, I'm sure your expectation as well, are looking like they are going to be aggressive. They're right there near the top of the Eastern Conference again, despite that really almost two-month slump that they kind of had in the middle of the season. They got hot again. They're right in the mix. And what I find just looking around the league, Emily, is there really isn't a clear front runner. And for a team like the Rangers sitting where they are at this point, they've been in the playoffs a couple of years in a row now. We know Chris Drury kind of has this win-now mandate. There's a reason that he was put in charge and that Davidson and Gorton were let go. Obviously, that sent a message that the expectation was that this group would win now. You look at the core of the team, a lot of the guys are 30 or older now. So, you know, do you have kind of that same expectation that they're going to be one of the most aggressive teams out there? Definitely. I think the West is a lot deeper with contenders this year. You can rattle off four different teams. The Golden Knights are top for me, uh, but the Stars look really good. The Avalanche are always there lurking. They're looking to add to. And then the Oilers, another bit middling lately, but it just feels like there's a lot of momentum for their year. And there's going to be really good teams in the West that are eliminated in the first round. And the East just feels way more wide open. I feel like we don't typically say that because there's so many of those traditional powers like Pittsburgh and Washington who like just don't feel like even if they sneak in, aren't going to be a threat. And that's why I do think the Rangers are one of the more aggressive teams that we see right now. Now, the Florida Panthers are probably the best team in the East. They've got $6 million in cap space. And we listen to their GM, Bill Zito. He's like, I can't give up first round picks anymore because I don't even have them. But it feels like they're going to do something just because why not? They're that good. The Bruins are always kind of lurking there. And, you know, we know what happened to them in the playoffs last year. But I know it's a rallying cry for the fan base, rallying cry rather. Um, But I think the management feels that too, is like, why not us? And that's why they have been aggressive looking at some of these top names available and just all ways to improve their group. And specifically, it looks like they're looking in the forward position. Yeah, well, so that's what I wanted to get to next. And and we'll start at center because I think especially since Philip Heedle started dealing with his issues this season and is now ruled out for the rest of the season. Center has been their main focus. We'll talk about right wing first. I I mean, later as well, but for center, we had the Lindholm deal. We had the Monaghan deal a while ago. Now it feels like a really long time ago that those two guys got dealt and it felt like, Oh, maybe things are going to start happening a little bit earlier. and, And now it's kind of been stagnant. And what I've been hearing a lot is that, this is looking a lot like a seller's market and the asking prices for the centers that are available. And there aren't a whole lot of really big names out there, at least that are widely rumored is that teams are asking for a lot. And I know that that's turned the Rangers off in certain instances, but what is your read on the market right now, as far as 
the asking prices and will they come down? You think as teams kind of draw a hard line and we get closer to the deadline or will it just come to a point where, you know, maybe you don't want to give up a first round pick for a guy that's going to play on your third line. But eventually if you want to get the deal done, you have to cave. So the top two centers that were probably everyone was circling um, have already gone. Elias Lindholm went really early and so did Sean Monahan. And because of that, I just think in general, it's a thin market at forwards and the asking prices at all forwards um, for the top end guys, because there really aren't many of them, are high. Like, so Jake Gensel is the top guy that we all expect to go. Like one rival executive told me the price for him was ridiculous. It was like two first round picks. Like, can you imagine? I was like, yeah, I can, because he's got that proof of concept in the playoffs. Um, So Scott Lawton is another guy that fits into that. You know, he's in Philadelphia, the Flyers management. When you become a general manager and you take over with your new management group, and that's Danny Brer and Keith Jones and John Tortorella is involved with it. You really only get one chance for a rebuild. And they're like, okay, even though we're pushing for the playoffs right now, like we don't get to try to build this three years from now and start over. Like, let's do it now. And that's why Danny Breer is like, I'm not shopping Scott Lawton, but if people call me and have a really good offer, we're willing to part with him, even though he embodies so much of what it means to be a flyer. But that price is really high. Like, I think it's right up there with uh the Jake Gensel asking price just because he still has years left on his contract. So I think for a team like the Rangers, even if they are going all in, and I do get the sense that they are willing to move their first round pick um, if the player makes sense. And like a player like Scott Lawton surely would make sense, but you want to give up your first round pick and then a ton of other assets um, for a guy that, you know, you don't feel amazing about And Maybe they do feel amazing. I'm not sure, but that's just to say that some of these asking prices for the high end boards are really high. Um, and then it drops pretty significantly. And centers always are the hardest position to fill. They just don't become available. Um, it's just the nature of the position. You've got to draft and develop your stud players there. Um, so it's definitely a thinner market, but we'll see what they can find. The the name that seems like it's been out there a lot, but it's I had heard first round pick was also the asking price. I don't know if that's changed at all, but is Adam Henrique, you know, when you're looking at centers, maybe the next best guy available or, or what's your read on maybe the market for him right now? Yeah, it definitely is Adam Henrique. And to be honest with you, like Candid, I was pretty shocked like two months ago when I started to hear his name float out there. And I asked one of my friends who works in a front office, I'm like, really? Like Adam Henrique is 34 years old. And he's like, no, no, no. He's so smart. Like the way that he plays, um, you know, when you get a guy to come to your team on March 8th and you're asking him to completely adjust within like six weeks and get ramp up ready for the playoffs, like it's a big ask. And there's just feel like Adam Henrique is the guy that could seamlessly do it. And I think has been able to showcase all that he can do on an Anaheim team that has been rebuilding. So I do agree with you that uh, he's probably that next tier of guy available, um, but it's going to be a high asking price that Pat Verbeek has been asking. And it does feel like an inevitability at this point that he will get traded. I just not sure who's willing to pony up. Mm-hmm. As we shift now to right wing, because I think that's the other position the Rangers are looking at, especially somebody who might give them another option to play in that spot next to Kreider and Zabanajad, which has just really been a revolving door since the Buchnevich trade a few years ago. Buchnevich is a guy who, who who's out there, and it it seems kind of interesting to me. I mean, quite frankly, my read on the situation is that the Rangers aren't going to go down that road between what the asking price would be compared to what 
the little bit that the return that they got a few years ago of a second round pick in Sammy Blay. I don't think they're going to be willing to turn around and give up a first round pick plus to bring that guy back. I also sensed that there wasn't a whole lot of love lost in maybe certain segments of the front office with him. So him, I don't really look at as a viable guy. Uh, if you've heard otherwise, please let me know. But there are um, some- I'll just echo what you've heard. I just heard that it was highly unlikely that a reunion would be in place there. Yeah, yeah. So that one, I think I would cross off my list. But you mentioned Gensel's the guy who, I mean, he would be an ideal fit for the Rangers. It's just the price tag is so high. And then there's a few other interesting guys who have been here before, and the Rangers liked what they got out of them while they were here. And that's Frank Vetrano and Vladimir Tarasenko. So your read on the right wing market, those guys, the availability, do you think any maybe come a little bit cheaper than the others? Or are we basically talking first round pick maybe plus for all of them? Vlad Tarasenko might come cheaper um, just because he has that cap hit of $5 million. And in the Rangers case, they couldn't ask the Ottawa Senators to retain any for the double retention rule. So the thing with Vlad Tarasenko that I heard is that he loved his time with the Rangers. Um, He really wanted to stay. The front office couldn't figure it out. And I think, you know, he's changed his agent yet again. Um, He's probably changed his agent more than any other player I know in the NHL. Um, but maybe one of the reasons why was he was trying to figure out if he could find and will his way back to the team that he wants to. Not sure it's going to work out. Again, I think the salary cap might be prohibitive there, but I do think it is a possibility. Um, and then the other guy you mentioned was... Vetrano. Uh, yeah, Vetrano is another situation where Pat Verbeek, like he's Steve Eiserman 2.0. Like he was trained under Steve Eiserman. They worked together closely. Um Huge, you know, rink rat. You'll always see him on the road. Um, and he is building his team the right way. And like, I have like complete patience and the development here. And Frank Vetrano is a player that has an extra year on his contract. And he's like, okay, well, he's really important to what we do. We sign him as a free agent. If you guys want him, that's great. But this is the asking price and it's pretty high. And in the same vein as Scott Lawton, my sense is that the Rangers might shy away from it if that said, they know who the player is. They know he loves being in New York. They know he vibes with a lot of guys. And he does have that extra year on his contract. And I do think Frank would welcome the opportunity, too, to return to New York. So I would put that one on the maybe department. So there's two teams that I've kind of had my eye on and I've heard connected with the Rangers that I wanted to ask you about. One of them would be San Jose. And you look at their roster, it seems like a lot of different guys in the right scenario might be available. Now there aren't any big, I don't think sexy names like a Gensel or, or a guy who you feel like is a surefire top six kind of guy necessarily, but there's a lot of intriguing names there. I know Anthony Duclair is a name that that's come up, especially because of his speed and his scoring that he could bring on the wing, which are a couple areas the Rangers would like to address. And, and it seems like that's a team maybe you could do some business with and not have to sacrifice your prime assets. So San Jose, I mean, obviously with where they are in the standings, do you have a pretty firm grasp that they're, they're going to be a seller and a lot of different guys could be available? Oh yeah, no, their general manager, Mike Greer, basically told all of his peers, Look at my roster. If there's anyone you want, give me a call. Uh, That's just the state that they're in right now. I think part of that might be trying to figure out ways to unload some of the veterans that have been really preventing them from doing this full rebuild because they're locked into some bad contracts there. Um, But a guy that I think Rangers fans might be curious about is Luke Cunnan. Um, He is 26 years old. Uh, He's bounced around the league a little bit, but like a high work effort. Uh, type of guy. He's playing right wing there. I think he's played some center in the past, but that would be the type of player where the Rangers could say, okay, maybe we didn't want to pay some of the asking prices for the players we mentioned recently, but 
Luke might be a good fit here. So he's an option. Anthony DeClaire, you mentioned, he has all the speed in the world. It's tantalizing. Um, sometimes it's either just been a hands thing for him, just getting bad luck and, and getting into those dirty areas or work thing. Or, you know, he's bounced around quite a bit in his league. He did have that small uh, flash of the pan with the Rangers back in the day. And I think, you know, you never, you know, always wonder what if. So yeah, I'd put him on the possibility list. I don't know how high he is on the Rangers uh, search right now. Other team I want to ask you about is Seattle, because when I look at their roster, there's so many guys that I feel like I would be intrigued by. There's a lot of guys who I think would would fit potentially well for what the Rangers are looking for, whether it's at center or at wing. The question with them is, are they actually going to sell? Because they've kind of been hovering in that Western Conference playoff race. It seems like they've slipped back a little bit. Their odds seem kind of long. So what's your read on the Kraken and you know whether or not they will be willing to sell or not? Ron Francis, their GM, has a very small circle. Um, he always has. It's always been the way he operates. Um, but what it has leaked out of that organization for me is that he was going to wait as late as possible to make a decision if he was going to sell or not. But it didn't seem like they were in position to add because there might be this belief that, okay, last year we did what we did and we kind of overachieved. But realistically this year, it might not be our year. Like things have just kind of struggled for us. Um, two players there that are of interest, Alex Wenberg. I know he's already been linked to the Rangers a bit publicly, a center. Um, pretty interesting there. And then Jordan Eberle. I've heard that, you know, his contract, you know, talks with the Seattle Kraken. He's asked for a lot and they balked at that and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we're not sure we're willing to pay you that, especially at your age. But he's their top line right wing right now playing on Matty Benier's line, um, has that ability to play with top talent, has that proven track record of being in the league for so long. So he could be a possibility. Is there anybody that I haven't mentioned or or any, whether it's your own connecting of the dots or things that you've heard as far as what might make sense for teams that the Rangers could be looking at? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because two teams in the Rangers division, actually three teams, um, the Flyers, the Penguins and the Capitals do appear like they could be selling. And I always wonder when you sell in the division, what's the extra tax that you add on that? You know, Nick Dowd is a player. Um, he's a center. I feel like that could be a perfect guy to fit Phil Heedle's spot. He kills penalties. He's basically a coach's dream. Um, has the extra year on his contract. So if they are, you know, giving up a ton for him, at least you can feel good about having him for next year. Um, but like if the Capitals are going to trade him specifically in division, like how much does that cost? Uh, Tommy Novak was another player like the Predators. I had heard he was of interest, especially just because of his cap hit under a million dollars, like a high work guy. Um, but it sounds like because the Predators have been on the streak that they have been in the last week or so, they've tampered down of saying, oh, don't come poaching players from our contract. And now it seems more trending that he'll sign a contract extension in Nashville. So I would erase him from the board. Yeah, he was a guy who I really found, I mean, like a month or two ago when I was scouring rosters, I was like, this guy would make a lot of sense. But yeah, they they seem like they've really charged a bit in that Western Conference wildcard race, whereas Seattle's a team that's kind of slipped. So Seattle, I feel like, has been drawing more attention recently. You know, as you know, the Rangers like to keep their cards pretty tight to the chest, and it's a little bit of a guessing game now especially when you consider what some of the prices are and how much the Rangers will be willing to pay. But I do think that because of the the mode that they're in and because of the state that the core is in and because of the opportunity that is there in the Eastern Conference, that whether it's a first-round pick, you know, maybe their top, top prospects like Perot and Othman might be off limits. But I, I think there's a lot of stuff they'd be willing to talk about. And I, I do anticipate that they'll make probably multiple moves. I, I think two forwards is probably the goal. And uh, it's going to be an interesting week because a, a lot of balls seem to be in the air. 
No, that, and that echoes, this is why you're going to report events, uh, exactly what I've been hearing about them. Again, first round pick is in play. They do have the first and second round pick this year. Remember, they don't have their second round pick in 2025 or 26 available. Um, I did have some notes. I can pull them up from a scout on just what those drafts look like. But also just to the point of the top two prospects, um, they're off limits. Like another team told me they called and they're like, would you consider Gabe Perot? And it was like, absolutely not. Um, and then, yeah, just on, just on those two draft classes, if you're curious, 24 is considered good and defenseman heavy. Top is not good, not as generational as top three of 2024. We know how good those three guys have, could be. Uh, the 2025 mirror is 24, but no Celebrini, Bedard, Carlson, or Fantilli. So um, that's just kind of what you're looking at in the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, for the Rangers, I look at it like this with this year's first round pick. It's probably going to be late 20s or they hope early 30s. And at that point in the draft, are you are you really getting a big time impact player? It tends to get a little watered down that late in the first round. And when you're looking at a potential run in the Eastern Conference in the situation that they're in right now, I, I feel like for the right player, that has to be in play. It's just a matter of the right player. You don't want to do it for a guy that you're not in love with, obviously. Totally. And my guy who's the director of amateur scouting, he knows his stuff. He said his gut is that after the top five to six players in this year's draft, the next two years, the player pool between 10 and 40 is very similar. So if you get rid of your first round pick this year, you can kind of get a similar level player in 2025 or 2026. And they were able to hold their higher first round pick last year and snag Perot, who's looking like a steal right now. So he's an absolute stud. You guys are going to love him. Yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely, I think, uh, pretty much everybody I talk to considers him the top prospect in the organization now. So, all right, Emily, I've taken enough of your time. I got to let you run. I really, really do appreciate it. Definitely check out all of her work across ESPN on TV. She's all over the place these days. She's doing an amazing job, and I really, really appreciate your time. No, you're the best, Vince. Again, you've been crushing it on the beat. There's, you know, I just always read your stuff. I always learn from your stuff. So keep being you, and I look forward to seeing you at the Garden sometime soon. Welcome back, and thanks again to Emily for taking some time away from the phone calls to spend some time and chat with us and allow me to pick her brain. She is always way too nice to me and probably says nicer things about me than I deserve, but I appreciate it, and it's cool to have someone like her that we can check in with from time to time, especially when there is all this league-wide interest and league-wide chatter like there is right now to just give us some perspective. I'm obviously very locked in on what's going on with the Rangers at all times, keeping tabs on the rest of the league, but hyper-focused on the Rangers. She gives us more of an umbrella over the whole league, and we were able to hit on a bunch of different names there and a bunch of different options. As she touched on, as I've touched on, predicting exactly which player Drury has at the top of his list as his very tippy-top target is difficult right now because of how tight-lipped he is and how tight-lipped he has made really the entire organization when it comes to specifically the trade deadline and, and these type of moments where a lot of balls are in the air. I know he's thorough. I know he's checked in and called with a lot of different places. We have an idea of the places of where he's sniffed around. People that I'm talking to have continued to point me out west, keep an eye on teams like Anaheim, like San Jose, like Seattle. I definitely think there have been multiple conversations with Drury and those general managers. In fact, the Ducks GM, Pat Verbeek, 
was at Madison Square Garden sitting in the press box among all the reporters and the scouts who were there for Wednesday night's game against Columbus. Now, could have also been there to keep an eye on some guys from Columbus, but you have to believe that there have been some conversations. I've heard that there have been some conversations with him and Chris Drury, whether it's about Henrique, whether it's about Vetrano, whether it's about other guys on the Ducks roster. So I'm looking toward that West Coast as teams that I feel like are most likely for the Rangers to do a deal with. But Emily touched on the possibility of maybe even something happening within the division. Jake Gensel, not for the Rangers, but just in general, is a guy who's really picked up steam in these conversations around the league recently. He seems like the biggest remaining piece that's going to be moved. And for what the Rangers need, he checks pretty much all the boxes. It's just that price tag is going to be so high that I've heard from people who have doubts about, A, whether the Rangers are willing to pay it, and B, even if they were willing to go to a multiple first-round pick or a first-round pick in top, top prospect area, which we're not so sure about, especially given the report that I had earlier about Perot and Othman being off limits. Even if the Rangers were to go to those lengths, there's other teams that might have more appealing prospect pools, that might have more draft picks with which to work with because the Rangers have sacrificed a lot of them in recent years. So even if they were to go all in on Gensel, the competition would still be really fierce and they still might not have enough ammunition to get it done. So he, you might put in the long shot category, although I'd have, find it hard to believe that they haven't at least checked in on him, but there's a lot of different pieces and there's certainly a chance, maybe even a likelihood that one of the guys that they bring in might end up being someone who we haven't even really discussed a whole bunch. They've uncovered some gems like they did. We've talked about the Frank Vetrano deal a couple of years ago. I don't think anybody saw that one coming when the Rangers got him from the Panthers, who were a team that was in playoff condition or position. We tend to look a lot at the teams that we know are going to be sellers that are out of the playoffs. And it's certainly the case more often than not that that's where the deals come from. But you never know what could materialize at this time of year, and that's what makes it so exciting. So again, awesome conversation with Emily. Really enjoyed that one. And we're going to get answers to some of these questions in the coming days. But for me, again, my gaze is going out west still and wondering if there's not at least one player that might be coming from that Pacific time zone. So we shall see. With that, let's move on to this week's set of Twitter questions. And actually, this first one does not come from Twitter. I had a listener by the name of Richard reach out to me a couple days ago. I do appreciate the emails. I've gotten a lot of emails from not just podcast listeners, but readers and, and all kinds of people recently. And I, I really do appreciate it, especially a lot of complimentary ones recently. Again, I'm not sure I deserve all that, but I do very much appreciate if you take time out of your own busy schedules to express your appreciation for the work or whatever it might be, ask questions. Always happy to hear from you guys. But Richard reached out and said he does not have Twitter, but it sounds like he's been wanting to ask some questions. So he kindly asked if I would include one of his questions that was submitted via email on this week's episode, and I'm happy to do so. So... Richard wrote, there's so much discussion about who to put at the right wing spot with Mika and Kreider and whether Kako can secure it, and if not, who to bring in to do so. But perhaps we should be talking about how Mika is having a good but not great year offensively. 
A team's number one center is supposed to carry his line, make his wings better, and be the engine for the team's offense. While he's putting up decent numbers and playing well defensively, Mika is not doing what you'd hope your 1C would do. Is it not fair to say that it doesn't matter as much who the right winger is if Mika doesn't take his game to another level? Richard, a lot of fair points in there. Not a whole lot that I would dispute. I do believe that Mika Zabanajad has not been as prolific, as efficient offensively as we have been accustomed to. Now, if you look at any month in Mika Zabanajad's career, March has been his most prolific month. So we're entering that territory right now where he tends to get hot. So I wouldn't go writing him off quite yet. And you touched on this, but you look at the point total. He's not too far off from a point per game. I think from an assist standpoint, from a passing standpoint, he's actually gotten better over the years. And we've seen him, I think, become more aware and more effective in that area. But ultimately, this is a guy who, when he's on top of his game, I believe is the best goal scorer in this lineup. Kreider, we know what he does, especially around the net front, and he has that 50-goal season on his resume, so he clearly is in that conversation. Panarin, with what he's doing this season, 35 goals and counting, he's forced his way into that conversation as well. But if you look at the track record and you look at the ways in which he's capable of scoring, you look at the shot, you look at the way that he's attacked off the rush in the past, you look at all the different ways that Mika Zibanejad can hurt you, that backhander where he lifts that back foot, to kind of throw the goalie off balance a little bit and then lifts that backhander over the shoulder. He has torched goalies in a lot of ways over the years, and he has been red, red hot. I don't think I've ever seen anybody in my time covering the team as hot as Mika was that last month or so before COVID shut the season down in 2020. He was at 40-something goals in like 70 games, or even fewer actually because he missed a little time. So he was on fire at that point. And Maybe that was not sustainable, but you feel like there's more in the tank than what we've seen from him this season. The five-on-five scoring is an ongoing topic, and I've talked to him a little bit about this. I actually hope to maybe pick his brain about it a little bit more sometime once we get through this trade deadline and the dust settles a little bit. I know that he believes that there's a lot more on his plate and a lot more that he's responsible for than just five-on-five scoring. You touched on the defense. You touched on all the responsibility that a number one center has to play with. Power play, penalty kill. I mean, his penalty killing is arguably, I think, the best on the team, I might say, especially when you consider how he attacks shorthanded. He's got a few shorthanded goals, I believe, this season, and I know a number of them on his career resume. So all the different facets of the game where he contributes are very, very important. But this is a guy who, at this point in the season, we're about three quarters of the way through, only has five goals at five on five and has not scored a five on five goal since December 23rd. We're talking about before Christmas. We're talking about more than two months now since he scored a five on five goal. And quite frankly, that is not good enough from your number one center. So I agree with the sentiment here, Richard. And I do believe that for the Rangers to achieve the ultimate success that we're constantly talking about, For them to be a true Stanley Cup contender, there's a long checklist. 
Getting Igor on track was certainly a, a big part in that conversation. Improving the overall defense, especially off the rush, was a huge point in that conversation. Making the right trade deadline additions is going to be a big part of that equation. But getting more consistent five-on-five scoring outside of that panarin trocheck lafreniere line is another key point for me on that list. And if we're going to point the finger at anybody who needs to up their effort in that area, it's that line with Kreider and Zabanajad, and specifically Mika has to be the play driver on that line. It's a lot of burden on his shoulders when you can t- consider the full package and you consider all the special teams minutes that he logs and, and all the different things that he does for this team. I've talked before about how I believe in some ways he's underrated defensively when you think about the way that he picks pockets, when you think about the way that he covers the middle of the ice so well, when you think about the way that he hustles from one end to the other. He is absolutely a 200-foot center. I don't believe that he is one of the elite centers in the league. He's not a Crosby. He's not a McDavid. He's not a McKinnon. So you have to consider it in that light. I think expecting him to be that is expecting a little bit too much, but you can expect more than five, five on five goals through three quarters of the season through 60 games. That is a fair ask of a guy who the Rangers rely on as heavily as they do with him. And last year, I thought he was their best overall player. I voted for him for team MVP. He he will not get my vote for that award this year. It, unless something crazy happens in the next few weeks, it's going to be Artemi Panarin. I don't even know if I would have Mika in my top three right now. I'd have to put a little more thought into it. But they could certainly use more out of him specifically at five on five. So that's all fair. Now, if they get the right fit at right wing, could that help unlock Mika's game? Could that take a little bit of the burden away from him? Absolutely. So that's something that they're definitely talking about and definitely needs to be a consideration at the trade deadline. But to your point, while that could and should help, it's, going to fall on him and Kreider to get more out of themselves at five on five as well. One right winger, no matter who it is, even if it is a guy like Gensel, is not going to all of a sudden be able to snap their fingers and solve everything. It's got to be a collective thing. The right winger can help. That would be, I think, a nice boost for Mika and for Kreider at five on five. But them stepping up their game, specifically offensively, at even strength at five on five. That is something that that needs to happen for the Rangers to reach their potential. And I, I would find it hard to dispute that it has been at the level that you would expect it or like it to be so far this season. So really not much of an argument here as far as your point there, Richard. They could use more out of Mika at five on five when it comes to scoring without a doubt. All right, let's get to our next question, which comes from Terry Seinfeld, who wrote, Something not thought about is the D-depth. We are one injury away from trusting Jones in the playoffs. Or if Jones is a chip for a trade, we are digging down in Hartford. Any ideas on if they are potentially looking for a seventh defenseman? Thanks for all your work. So I noticed that there were a handful of people who actually asked about defensemen and whether that should be more on our radar as far as what the Rangers are looking at at the trade deadline. And I've said this before, it would not shock me if the Rangers added a depth defenseman, but there are a few reasons that I can cover here why I don't think it's a very high 
priority. The first being when you look at their top six, I do not believe that they are looking to move any of those six players out of the lineup. You look at the bottom pair with Schneider and with Gustafson. Gustafson seems to be the guy that some people have said to me, well, maybe they could look for an upgrade there. I have to say, I kind of disagree with that from a few standpoints. To me, looking at where the Rangers have been on their bottom pair the last few years when they've been heading toward the playoffs, this is the strongest position that they've been in. You think about whether it was Patrick Nemeth, whether it was Ben Harper. I absolutely believe that Gustafson is a significant upgrade over what they got out of those two guys. So you look at his overall season, and actually I sat down with him last week, and I've been sitting on this interview for a little bit, but I think I might write it for this weekend to address this topic a little more in depth. I sat down with him at his locker the other day, and think about the first half of the season. Gustafson was outstanding for the Rangers. He was a revelation. I still think, even though Jonathan Quick has been great, for them in the role that they've asked him to play. His limited ice time and his limited number of starts, you could make an an argument that Gustafson has been the most valuable free agent signing that Drury brought in over the summer because he's played every game. Because during that stretch, when Adam Fox went out with an injury, Gustafson seamlessly moved up in the lineup and, and you didn't miss a beat, whether that was at five on five or stepping onto the top power play unit. So having a guy like that, an efficient, puck mover, a guy who can chip in some offense, a guy who, if you look at the analytics, grades out in some categories as the Rangers' best defenseman this season. He's neck and neck with Adam Fox in a lot of categories. So the underlying numbers all look really solid for Gusterson, which has not been the case when we talk about some of the past bottom pair guys, whether we're talking about Harper or Nemeth or whoever. So Gusterson, I think, because... Of all those reasons, he, he's been rock solid for you in that role. And we know that Peter Laviolette has a lot of trust in him. Now, one of the things that Gustafson talked to me about, well, two things that stood out to me in that conversation. Number one, he didn't use it as an excuse and he wasn't too forthcoming about it, but he did hint at having a period during the season, in the middle of the season, December, January, where he was dealing with something that he had to work through. And we remember... He missed a game, I think it was in January, where all of a sudden it kind of came out of nowhere that he had this, I think it was a lower body injury, and he missed the one game, but he came back really quickly. He made it sound to me like there was a period there where he was really fighting through something, and he was not happy with how he was playing, but he's feeling better physically recently, and he's feeling better about the way that he's playing recently. So that's something to consider if you felt like maybe his play dropped off in the middle of the season for a little while. But the other thing that he mentioned to me is that he knows that in the role that he's in right now, that it is going to be his primary responsibility to defend and clear the net front and take care of some of those battle areas where him, the Rangers, I think a lot of you understand the bottom pair is going to need to be effective in a playoff kind of a setting. Now, Schneider, I think you could look at and say, well, has he really done enough to absolutely solidify his role? But he does bring that physicality, that edge, that defensive commitment that you know the Rangers want in their bottom pair. So you've got a good balance there, I think, and I believe the Rangers feel this way as well. And you have Gustafson talking about, 
listen, for me, what's going to be really important is locking down my defense, holding it down at our own end, and making sure that I'm boxing guys out and I'm clearing the crease and I'm making sure that my goalie isn't screened. Because there have been times, I think especially during this period when he was maybe a little banged up, where he did get burned in some of those areas. So he's very conscious of that. And I think that a veteran like that will be able to defend fairly effectively in a playoff setting. Is he the biggest guy? No. Is he the strongest guy? No. But you've got a big, strong guy right next to him in Braden Schneider. And again, the yang and the yang of that pair, I think for the most part, has worked out pretty well for the Rangers. And the analytics back a lot of that up. So I don't think the Rangers are looking to move any of the top six defensemen out of the lineup right now. And then when we talk about Jones, I've said this before and I'll repeat it again. They are not placing him on waivers. He remains one of their most valuable young players that could be used in a potential trade. Now, if he's traded, that would, I think, open the door and increase the likelihood that they would go out and acquire a seventh defenseman like Terry is suggesting here. But if Jones sticks around, then I do believe that they're going to keep him as the seventh defenseman because they are not going to risk exposing him on waivers. I strongly believe that another team would pick him up. I think I told you guys this before, but I was having a conversation with a scout a little while back who told me that he believes that about 40% of the teams in the league would have Jones in their starting six, in their lineup on a nightly basis. Now, you know, a top, top playoff team, probably not, especially a team that has an established power play guy like the Rangers do with Fox. But there are a lot of teams that, that I think would be interested in Jones. And so they're not going to risk giving that up for nothing. He's going to remain on this roster unless he's traded. So if he's traded, then yes, maybe they do look to bring somebody in a, a low cost kind of addition, both in terms of salary cap and in terms of the assets that you would have to send back to get that player. But I also think if you do look down to Hartford, they liked a lot what they've gotten in the limited time that Connor Mackey has been up here and the toughness that he showed. So you talk about wanting some playoff grit. I think Mackey's shown that he can bring that. And so I do think that they would be comfortable with him in a short stint as the seventh defenseman. Now, if he had to play in a playoff game, could that be a little bit of a concern? Maybe, but I do think the Rangers are fairly comfortable with him as a depth guy for them at Hartford who could get called up in a pinch. I think Mac Hollowell He's not a big physical guy. He's actually a smaller defenseman. But you look at the points that he's putting up for Hartford, he's having a really solid season for them. So that's another depth piece that I think they like in Hartford. And they still have Matthew Robertson, who is a prospect who has not completely fallen off the radar, obviously has not really gotten any kind of an NHL chance yet, but six foot four, a big, strong kid, and I think would satisfy that requirement for having a guy with a little bit of, a, of size as a depth piece as well. So, they have some defensemen at Hartford that I think they would be comfortable calling up for a seventh defenseman type of role if needed. So to me, when I size up the defenseman situation right now, whether it's the top six or whether it's the guys that they have as options in the seventh spot, I don't see it as a desperate need. I don't see it as a necessity. And I don't see them paying premium assets or using very much of their cap space at all to go out and acquire a seventh guy. So that is kind of my, my long-winded answer on that. Jones, I think, again, is very much in play at this trade deadline, and it would not surprise me if he's traded, and then maybe that changes the outlook a little bit. But Jones has spent all season as that seventh defenseman. 
I think right now, if somebody got hurt, quite clearly, he would be inserted into the lineup. And I think the Rangers would be comfortable with that. In a playoff setting, maybe they would feel a little differently because he's a, a smaller guy, because he's not a very physical guy, because defense is the main question mark with him. But they have other guys at Hartford, too, that I think they could maybe get more of those elements out of if they really felt like that that was a need. So maybe a defenseman ends up here. I, I'm not ruling it out, but I think adding a couple forwards is definitely the bigger priority right now. And I think that as long as everybody's healthy, the top six defensemen that you see are going to be the ones who remain intact. All right, let's get to our final question, which comes from Eddie Nathan, who wrote, Assuming Drury brings in a right wing and a center at the deadline, who's the odd man out? Rempe looks to be the first one out based on usage, but Edstrom is proving to be an ideal fourth liner and seems to have LaViolette's trust. So does that mean Brodzinski gets pushed to the 13th forward? It's a good question, Eddie. It's one I've been thinking about myself a little bit recently, and I know we've talked about it on the pod a little bit in the past. Let's start with Rempe because we haven't even talked about him on this whole episode and he's been like arguably the biggest story in the NHL in the last week or so. I showed up for Tuesday's practice. I've never, I don't think, seen that many reporters at a practice at the training center really in all my time covering the team, maybe during that 2022 playoff run. But even then, I don't know. We had like Wall Street Journal and all these places showing up that I've never seen at a Rangers practice before, and they were all there to see Rempe. He has captivated the league for the obvious reasons of getting in four fights in his first five games. Those fights that he had over the weekend, the one in Philly against Nick Delorier, that was a knockdown, drag him out, heavyweight bout. Emily talked about this too. In my opinion, I think in her opinion, I think in a lot of people's opinion, one of the most ferocious, intense fights that we've seen in the NHL in a long time. So that one was was awesome. But then you look at Sunday against Columbus and he goes against Matthew Olivier and he kind of got it handed to him a little bit in that one. He definitely took some heavy punches, ends up going down to the ice at the end of that fight. And then I see him on Tuesday and he's got this massive black eye. So the kid's taking a lot of punishment. And I know that there's some legitimate concern about this isn't sustainable. You can't be getting your face punched in. You don't want to have that kind of repeated head trauma. We've talked about all the concussion issues that Philip Hedel has had. I don't think getting punched in the face repeatedly almost every single game is recommended, certainly. And this is a young man, 21 years old. You know, his health has to be, I think, a consideration here at some point. So I don't want to be too much of a downer. And I'm not the kind of guy who says, oh, fighting should be completely out of the game. But the last thing that anybody wants to see is somebody gets seriously hurt. And I even got the sense Tuesday when there were all those reporters around that this sort of sideshow element that has arisen out of this situation where everybody is just looking at him as a face puncher and that's been something that almost has been expected in these games and is almost creating this not unnecessary attention on him, but this attention on him that maybe he's not totally comfortable with. This is a guy who I think wants to prove that he can actually play hockey beyond just being a face puncher. So there was a little bit of uneasiness that I sensed with all that attention on him the other day, although I have to give him credit. His personality has been refreshing. I said this to Emily and I'll say it to you guys again, that 
I don't think I've ever seen anybody who got called up and was so genuinely amped up and excited the way that he has been. This is a kid who clearly loves life, is thrilled to be here, has been through a lot with losing losing his father at a young age and some of the other stuff that we've talked about. And so you feel great for him. This is an awesome opportunity for him. He's getting his 15 minutes of fame right now. You just want to see, make sure that they manage it properly. And I know I talked to Barkley Gaudreau about this the other day. They, they've had conversations with him. I think he understands that the fighting is something that his teammates admire and appreciate. And it adds an element to this lineup that maybe they've been missing a bit in recent years, especially since Ryan Reeves is gone. Although, you know, we saw Reeves here for a couple seasons and I could probably count how many fights he got in on one or at most two hands. So clearly that enforcer element of the game has been phased out. But Rempe has brought some excitement, some edge, some energy to the locker room and to the lineup. And I think that that has been welcomed by all of his teammates. I think it's been refreshing. I think it's been really fun to watch. We just, again, want to make sure that he remains healthy and doesn't feel obligated to do it every single game just for the sake of maintaining this reputation and, and entertaining people. So whether or not he has enough in his game to stick beyond just the fighting, that is what is going to be the question mark post-trade deadline. And Eddie touched on it there. Rempe didn't play at all in the third period on Wednesday night against Columbus when the Rangers were mostly trying to protect a one-goal lead. And I think that speaks volumes. I've talked to some scouts about him, and there are some very big question marks about whether or not this kid is a good enough all-around player to really become an NHL regular. I do think there have been glimpses of some elements that he brings that the Rangers want more of in their lineup. He moves pretty well for a big guy. I think that his forechecking has been noticeable. Obviously, his physicality has been noticeable, and it's created this energetic feel for that fourth line. So, there's been a boost, I think, for sure, from having Rempe and Edstrom on that fourth line with Gaudreau. But I do think that as far as having Laviolette's full trust when you're defending late in a game or in a critical situation, that it's not quite there. And so for that reason, I do believe that, yes, after the trade deadline, Rempe will come out of the lineup. Maybe they keep him around as an extra forward in case there's a game where they feel like they need to add some of that toughness. You could maybe see him inserted for specific situations like that. But I think Edstrom clearly has a much better chance of sticking around. And I think he's been more effective within the flow of the game. I think his defense has been good. His skating is really, really good. Goudreau told me the other day, actually, that Edstrom had one of the fastest straight line times when they were tested at training camp. So his mobility has really stood out to me. I had heard from people that, that he's a good skater, but I think that that has been very noticeable. He brings all those same physical elements that Rempe does minus the fighting, but obviously throws his body around, obviously sticks his nose in there on the forecheck, obviously I think wears down opposing defensemen who Goudreau told me he's noticing now are getting a little bit leery of digging pucks out from behind their own net when they know that the big fellas are bearing down on them. So, the Rangers have been looking for that, and that was maybe some of the stuff that they were targeting with some of their trade deadline options. And if they feel like they can get it from Edstrom, maybe he does have a chance of sticking in that lineup. And ultimately, with Rempe being a guy we believe will come out, 
that final spot, if they do add two forwards, would come down to Edstrom and Brodzinski. And a lot of that is going to depend, I think, on exactly what they get at the trade deadline. If they get a surefire third-line center that they clearly prefer to play over Brodzinski, then maybe Brodzinski does end up in that 13th forward role, and you build a fourth line that could look like Edstrom, Goudreau, and VC. I think that is very possible. But I think it's also possible that Brodzinski has earned his stripes here more. Brodzinski has given them clearly a little more offense than what you would expect to get out of Edstrom. And he does have the speed as well as the hardworking attitude that I think maybe could be effective in a fourth line role as well. But yeah, I think that that will ultimately be the question. Again, we're assuming that they add two forwards here. So if they do add two forwards, I do kind of think that you're on the right track here, Eddie, when you talk about the decision would come down to probably Bradzinski and Edstrom as far as who stays in the lineup with the other guy probably slotting in as the 13th forward. And then once the playoffs come around, they'd add even more guys. You know, playoffs, you could see them also having Rempe up and maybe another guy who can play center up. Maybe even a guy like Brennan Othman gets to come along for the ride in the playoffs. So for sure. But yeah, as you're kind of visualizing what this lineup might look like after the trade deadline, you know the Panarin line is going to stay together. You assume a right winger is going to come in here who's going to play with Kreider and Zabanajad. You might build a third line that looks like Cooley, third line center, whoever that might be, and Kako. And then your fourth line pieces, you're sort of picking three out of the four between VC, Goudreau, Edstrom, and Brodzinski. That is my best guess at where this is heading unless the Rangers add even another forward maybe they add three forwards in which case maybe then Edstrom and Brodzinski would both be out but I do think that Edstrom more so than Rempe even though Rempe is getting all the attention right now Edstrom is a guy that the Rangers are very intrigued by they love the size they love the mobility they love the physicality that he brings a lot of the elements that they want on that fourth line and his chances of sticking in the lineup even after the trade deadline are steadily increasing. All right. With that, we are going to end this week's episode. It was jam-packed. It was long, but this is trade deadline season, folks, so it's time to get all this off our chest while we still can. I, next week, am going to kind of play it by ear. The Rangers have this long break. They play Monday night. They host the Florida Panthers, which is going to be, I think, a really interesting and fun game when we talk about the top contenders in the Eastern Conference. And then they don't play again until Saturday which is after the trade deadline, March 9th. So they've got this five-day break where we're all kind of just going to be sitting around and waiting to see exactly what happens leading up to the trade deadline. And so I'm going to do a play-it-by-ear approach as far as when the podcast will come out. Maybe we stick with the usual Thursday morning routine if I decide I want to record on Wednesday. But the thing with that is if the Rangers haven't made any trades yet at that point – I don't know if I want a new podcast coming out on Thursday that then would be sort of old news by the time we get to Friday and the deadline. So it's possible I may wait until after the Rangers make a trade to release my next podcast, which would then be focused on reacting to the trades. So I will keep you guys posted, obviously, on Twitter and let you know what the plans are going to be as far as that. But at some point next week, we will have a new episode coming out. In the meantime, I want to thank everybody who submitted questions this week, whether it was Twitter or email. I want to thank Emily Kaplan, who was awesome and I really enjoyed chatting with. And I want to thank all of you for listening. 
We will be back with some, hopefully some news. Things are brewing. Things are happening. It's an exciting time of year for everybody, myself and all of you included. And so we'll see what the Rangers and Chris Drury have up their sleeves. But in the meantime, try to enjoy yourself. Try to enjoy the rest of the week. Not a whole lot of games coming your way. So that'll give us more time for the trade deadline stuff to simmer. And I look forward to it. So thanks again for listening, everybody. And I will talk to you next week. 